uh, the, the revival of 1949 that swept across the, uh, the Hebrides. It, it went into the 1950s. It, it carried on for many months. Some people would even say years, depending uh, when, you, when you count the momentum to have fully stopped, that you can no longer call it a revival. But it happened in the Hebrides, and more specifically, the Isle of Lewis, in Scotland. So if you imagine England, you know, the British Isles just off of the west of, of Europe uh, and, and, and north of England, I'm going real basic here for the, for the public schooled people, uh, on the north of uh, Britain, uh, of England, there is Scotland, and just off to the west of Scotland, there is a, a collection of islands called the Hebrides, and there is a, 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 a two, two that are, are pushed quite close together uh, just to the west of this horrible, brutal water body called the Minch, which was just deadly, cold, and windy. Uh, there's two little islands pressed up next to each other, the Isle of Lewis and the Isle of Harris, and both of them were touched by the revival that we're going to speak about tonight. The Hebrides, in general, are a rocky, treeless uh, bunch, of, bunch of islands. There is no trees on the islands. It's, it's quite amazing to see photos, whether on the internet or of relatives that might have gone, uh, gone there and taken photos. And it's just, it's not flat, it's rocky and mountainous, but it is, it's somewhat quite uh, unnerving to look at a landscape so vast with, with absolutely no trees. It's far too windy for trees to grow there. It is, uh, uh, while the wind blows very cold that would chill you to the bone, yet it is said that Lewis had, a, uh, had lacked for many years the wind and the warmth of the Holy Spirit in the religion. So they were a very Calvinistic, very Scottish, Presbyterian kind of, uh, kind of place. But they had, uh, uh, per capita, they were actually one of the wealthiest provinces of all of the British Isles because they had this enormously uh, successful uh, trade in, in uh, uh, textiles that they were shipping out. And many, many men were, going ex- uh, uh, were growing extremely wealthy because of their, uh, their business there. But when you mix the... The, the way that they were removed from much of the mainland. So history almost froze there a little bit. Culture was slower. But add to that the wealth of, of the people of Lewis. Their religion was cold and hard uh, uh, and lacked the warmth of the spirit. This is what Duncan Campbell, who was the preacher that God used to bring revival to these islands, this is what he said. He said, true, Lewis had its traditions The time-honored practice of family worship is still observed in most homes. The great doctrines of the Christian faith, such as the total depravity of man, justification by faith on the ground of Christ's atonement, regeneration by the Holy Spirit, and the sovereignty of God in all the affairs of men are central in the theology of Lewis. But, you remember, it is possible to have a name to live and yet to be dead. And has not experienced demonstrated again and again that man can be orthodox in sentiment and theology, but loose in practice. Correct views of scripture do not constitute righteousness. This is a very Calvinistic, and that, I, I want to emphasize that before I start saying some of the wacky things that were going on, in case any of you jump up and go, well, of course, revivals like that happen among the kooks who don't know the biblical theology. But... That's, that's not us. In fact, it said that the people of Lewis and Harris, even the godless people getting drunks in the towns and the pubs, they probably knew more of the your average church-going Christian in England because of their rich history of family worship, catechism, and, you know, Presbyterianism. 
Uh, and so they had all of that, but they had very little genuine spiritual life. There was almost no young people in the churches. And in fact, in this one area, uh, 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 Barvis, in this province, there was absolutely no young people. And by young people, well, you know, the definition of young people stretches the older the average person is in the congregation. So there's no young people, no one under 40. Yeah, that's, that's not young if you've got lots of 40-year-olds. 40 40 uh, and, and so, so there's lots of old people, no teenagers. That's what they mostly meant, though. There was no teenagers, no 20-year-olds or 30-year-olds. And, and they knew that in time, we would all die and leave behind a dead or empty church. So there was these, uh, a, a lot of the young people were active in dancing, drinking, and going to movies. They were busy in doing all sorts of things late at night other than going to the church prayer meeting, even though many of them, or, or some, many, many provinces still saw plenty of young people attending the Sunday worship. That was basically unspoken law of the day. But the young people were not in the churches. Peggy and Christine Smith, Peggy and Christine Smith, they are 82 and 84 years old, one of them, I can't remember which one, couldn't find it in the details, is stone blind, completely blind, can't see anything. They were extremely burdened by the spiritual state of the young people in the Isle of Lewis, in particular in Barbara, so that they started praying for the young people. And they, they started this, uh, uh, this, this commitment together that they would pray to God every Tuesday and every Thursday afternoon from 10 p.m., uh, not afternoon, evening, from 10 p.m. until 3 a.m., and every Tuesday and every Thursday in their little, in their little barn house, the two of them would gather uh, together on their old woman knees and they would kneel and pray to God that he would put, give an outpouring of the Spirit to the young people in Barvis. And one of them had a vision. They had a vision of, of, of one of the churches in their province that was filled to the brim with young people. And it was, it, was, it was her father's church that was filled with all of these young people. And they had this, this vision. And up on the pulpit, preaching was, was somebody that, that, that looked very specific to them, but they didn't know who it was. And she was, she was pressed that this man will lead the revival among the young people, but they didn't know who he was. They didn't know his name. So like a, like a good woman, she, gathers her, she, she calls for her elder to come and visit her the next day. And he knows that she's a praying woman and she's an old Scottish widow, so I think the unspoken rule is do whatever she tells you. And so he ran over to her house and asked her, and said, what, what happened? And she said, I, I, I had a vision. Here's what happened. There was a revival, and here's the assignment she gave to her pastor. She said, a man will preach this revival. You need to go and find him. And he, he said, okay, that praise the Lord, Peggy, uh, where might I go to find this man? And she goes, where? And she, Staffordshire something, something. She gave him some suburb, and she goes, he's not there, but someone there will tell you where he is. And he keeps going, but, but who? Who is going to tell me where who is? What do I even ask for? I'm going to look like an idiot walking to this, this convention, which is going on in another town, and then asking if they know the guy I'm looking for. But Peggy prevailed, and he went. And he went there and he, he told the people there, uh, some of the elders, the vision that he had seen. And he had thought probably this, this young, vi uh, vivacious preacher up on stage would be the guy that would, would lead the revival. So he went to him and he told him the vision and he said, I can't do that. I have no inkling and no drawing from the Lord. But you know who might do it? Reverend Duncan Campbell. This is the guy that would end up leading the revival. Now he was in a whole other town. 
So they sent letter to, he went back home and he sent a, a, a letter to, the, uh, uh, to Duncan Campbell and uh, Duncan Campbell returned a, a, a letter saying, I can't come. I'm involved in an outreach. We've been planning this for over a year. There's many evangelical leaders coming, and it's going to be in, in this uh, town in, in uh, Scotland, uh, back on the mainland, and we've got all these leaders coming. We've booked out the hotels. We've got the convention center, and it's going to be an amazing outreach and ministry week, and I just can't come to you right now. And Peggy, uh, uh, the, the, the elders went and told Peggy uh, exactly what they had heard. And in the meantime, they had started praying on Tuesdays and Fridays as well. We, uh, uh, Peggy and Christine were in their home and the, the brothers would uh, meet in the, in the barn to pray. And they got back the letter saying, he can't come. And, and the, the elder brought it to, to Peggy and she said, that's what this man thinks. I'm involved with what God thinks. He'll be here in 10 days. Shut the door. So again, the elder goes back and, and they keep on praying. And, and in the meantime, while, while, the, while they're waiting, uh, uh, the, the, the pastors are doing their praying Tuesdays and Fridays up until 3 a.m., or at least that's what they told us. I doubt they were keeping up with the, with the old ladies. But they were praying, and one of them, uh, one of them uh, uh, asked the deacon to stand up and, do, and read a psalm. And he stood up and he read Psalm 24 which if you know is that psalm about, about calling who is worthy to walk up to the, the, to the throne of God, to ascend the hill of the Lord. He who is clean of heart and he who has pure hands, only they may, may walk up. And he says, he says, brothers, it seems a whole lot of humbug for us to be gathering together and praying like we are if we ourselves are not rightly relating to the Lord. And he turned to the skies and cried out, Lord, are my hands clean? Is my heart clean? Pure. And with that, he fell down onto his knees into a trance. Now, the Calvinist who writes this story says, don't ask me to tell you what the trance is. I don't have a theology for it. But he fell down. He was in another dimension, place, planet, whatever you want to call it. He was in a trance and he, was witness, and he, was, uh, uh, he just wasn't there with them anymore. And right at that very moment, a cold, shivering wind seemed to have started from the building they were in, but swept through the entire town, rattling windows and causing quite a noise. Well, just about at the exact same time, Duncan Campbell, back on the mainland of Scotland, received word, in fact, that the government, the, the city council, wanted to use the same building and hotel and convention centre that he had planned out the government said, you're out, We're in. we have a government uh, convention we need to run. And they cancelled all of Duncan Campbell's plans. It was all, all shot through. And he said, well, there you go. I guess that's the calling of the Lord. He jumped on a boat and 10 days to the day he arrived on the Isle of Lewis. Before he arrived, the day that it was cancelled, when that man fell into the trance late at night, I believe it was the Friday, and the wind swept through the whole town, it caused what, what they called a God consciousness. This is what Duncan Campbell keeps on talking about when he speaks of the Hebrides revival. He keeps on talking uh, in, in his writings, in his, in his uh, lectures about it, in his books, 
about a God consciousness. And he says this actually starts, this is the start of the revival even before people start getting swept into the kingdom. And he says the thing that happened from that, from that blowing, you know, that, that wind that, chopped, that, that tore through town, people weren't obsessing about it. They weren't amazed by the wind. It just happened. But what happened the very next day was a deep God consciousness, as if everybody was walking around saying to each other with their eyes, are you, you feeling what I'm feeling? Like, like he's right here. Something's going to happen. It was a deep, unspoken expectancy that God was going to do something amazing in the town. Even people who weren't Christians, they were aware of God's presence and his activity. And when they had meetings, they would call prayer meetings and they would come in. And before anybody saying anything, before the, the guitarist and the pianist, which they didn't have because they were, they were psalm-only, voice-only Scottish singers, but they gathered together and before anything started, before anybody said anything or got anybody excited, they, they, everyone was sure they would have this expectation God was about to do something intense. And this happened for about two weeks. From the day of the wind, it took 10, day, uh, uh, 10 days for Duncan Campbell to arrive, almost two weeks, 10 days for him to arrive, and, and the whole town was in this constant expectant state. And this is the first mark that I want to talk about the Hebrides revival, is this awareness of God, the, the first marker to remember. The, what, what would strike before revival proper, what would happen before God really moved to sweep people into the kingdom was this deep sense of God's own presence. Now, the second thing about the Hebrides revival was that it had amazing, miraculous situations and events and circumstances without many miraculous occasions themselves. So in other words, he says there was no tongues, there was not a single healing in all of the months of the revival, there was nothing like that, there was there, really as far as you could go in terms of a, in terms of a charismatic or, 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 or miraculous gifting or occasion would be something like a prophecy or a vision. But even those were, 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 were not, quite as, uh, not quite the case. Mostly, the, the, the miracles that infused this revival, which God often does at times of revival, was, a, was miracles of circumstance. Like people would just, you'll see what, you'll see what I mean when I'm going through. <clears throat> miracles of circumstance, not miracles in actual occasions themselves. So uh, uh, the elder went to meet Duncan Campbell. It's been 10 days Duncan Campbell's arriving on the port. He walks uh, uh, over this cold little jetty, and he meets Duncan Campbell, and he says, brother, you must be tired, a full 10 days of travel, et cetera, et cetera, whatever it's been. Uh, I, I know you're hungry. We've got supper for you, but would you mind just coming by the prayer meeting house? We've just got a few people who are there, uh, and they'd love to have an encouragement from you. I haven't told anybody about it, but, but, but they're there. I didn't promise them you'd be there, but if you would be willing, and you'll get your supper later. He's, you know, he obliged, he was a godly man. We pretend to not get hungry when we're hungry. So he went and he walked in and he, and he saw about 300 people gathered at about 9 p.m. at night. And, and, and he, he stood up and, and he started to give his, his address and he spoke to them. And then they, then they prayed afterwards. And, and there was this thick, he says, this thick awareness that God was looking over everybody's shoulder. That God was right there in the room and that he might do something at any moment. No one could explain it, and nothing happened. There was no sweeping conversions. There was no crying out of conviction of sin. There was just, in 1949, November, an awareness. And so they closed off the, uh, 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 the, they closed out the meeting. He said the benediction, and then they were all walking out. And a deacon stood up 
And he pointed to the sky and he says, God, you can't fail us. You promised to pour floods of water upon the thirsty ground. Don't dare fail us. And Duncan Campbell was standing at the door thinking, I, I don't have the audacity to say that kind of thing to God. And of course, he was, he was referencing Isaiah 44 verse 3, which became something of a, of a touchstone for the Hebrides revival that they would claim and call out to God on the basis of. Isaiah 44, For I will pour out water on thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. That's, that, that's what he was claiming. He said, Lord, you promised you would do that. You haven't done it. And he falls down dead. So they thought. He was just in another trance. And he was there in this trance, and, and Duncan Campbell, rather, rather confused about what to do, not, not really used to this kind of thing. And then John Smith, give you one guess at what his job was. He was a smith. He burst in through the church doors, and he says, My goodness, our good and gracious Lord has done it. He's done it. And, and they, they turn with him. They walk with him, he points out the church doors, and there's just 600 people gathered out in the church courtyard, out in the, I'd say car park, uh, uh, or whatever it may be, out in, the, out in the field outside the church. 600 people had gathered right outside of the church hall, just as they're about to go home from their prayer meeting. There was no publicity, there was no advertisement, there was, no one knew that Uncle Campbell was going to be leading some revival, it wasn't advertised like that, and here they all were near the end of the night, near about 11 p.m. In fact, there was a hundred young people there who were in a town hall dancing, right, sinners, they were dancing, they were doing their, their Gaelic dance, and that's sort of one of the ways you'd be rebellious and worldly and strike out against your parents and meet, meet cute other young people and sin in all sorts of ways. They were, they were dancing to the pipers, a town over, and God somehow, no one knows why or how, but a hundred of them sprinted out of the room, ran down the road a few miles, and arrived at the church. Uncle Campbell, Duncan Campbell said, you could ask any one of them, why are you here? Why did any of you turn up here and they couldn't have told you why? So, John Smith called for a, a singing of Psalm 102 in the Scottish meter. And it reads like this. O Lord, unto my prayer give ear. My cry let come to thee. And in the day of my distress, hide not thy face from me. And these people almost barreled over John Smith, they started running into the church, filled the pews. It was now at capacity, and they sat there for another, uh, up until 4 a.m., the 800 people, uh, the eight to 900 people now sat there singing and praying, and he got, uh, Duncan Campbell got up and continued to exhort them and preach the gospel, and he said there was a young girl down on the front pew, and she was slumped over, weeping and wetting the ground with her tears, and she was simply screaming, oh God, is there mercy for me? Is there mercy even for me? She was one of the dancers that had run. This is one of those miraculous, divinely ordained circumstances. Nobody planned. No one could explain. What wasn't quite as maybe exciting as some kind of healing or something like that that modern people would want to look at, but it was powerful. And there was another one. Because after 4 a.m., they'd all finished. They started walking home. Duncan Campbell, pretty, at this point, hungry, very tired, pretty keen to just go home and have a nap. And as he's walking home, another young man runs up to him and says, Duncan Campbell, you have to come to the police station. And he's worried. There's been a murder. There's been a trampling. Something's happened. There are there, 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 there's a crime. And he says, 
brother, what has occurred? What's wrong? He says, nothing's wrong. You just have to come. They, they grabbed him. They walked him down the road. And there they were at the police station. There was 400 more people gathered, completely unplanned, just outside of the police station, sitting there, many of them on their knees, praying to God. And he was asking, what brought them here? Not everybody came from different areas, different parts of town. In fact, some from different towns. But they came to this, but what seemed like it was at the police station, but in fact, right next door was Peggy and Christine Smith's, Smith's house. They'd been drawn like a spiritual magnet to the women that had been praying for their souls for so many months. <clears throat> Duncan Campbell says of that event, he didn't need to preach. All he needed to do was go around and minister to people who were sure that they were convicted under God's holiness and they needed to trust in the Savior. One old man was on the ground, on his knees, beating his chest saying, Oh, hell is too good for me. Hell is too good for me. He came to faith the next night at a revival. And then again, there was another situation where these meetings then, once it started, it was done. It was happening night and day. People stopped working the next day. They were coming to the prayer meetings during the day, one in the afternoon, and then another one at night, which would go almost all the way through to uh, sunrise anyway. Uh, the churches were crowded, and this went on for five whole weeks nonstop. And one of these nights uh, at 3 a.m., so they're praying, they're preaching, they're singing, people are getting converted and wailing and crying out for conviction of sin. And at 3 a.m., somebody bursts in the door, and you know what? You know what the announcement is, because this has happened three times already. Somebody bursts in the door and says, Duncan, you have to come with us. A crowd has emerged at a church two villages over. Uh, I think it was 15 miles away. That's correct. And so they, they, he got on, on the little uh, uh, carriage. They, uh, uh, they, the carriage. It, this is the 1950s. Some of you were born then. I know you weren't on horse-drawn carriages at the time. <laughs> The van is what they got in. He jumped in a van and uh, shooted 15 miles down the road. And there was a packed church at 3 a.m. They hadn't started earlier. They had just all gathered in the same moment, unguided except by God's Spirit, at 3 a.m. And there, uh, 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 3.30 by the time he arrived, there was a thousand people packed into this building. And Duncan Campbell preached for two hours straight. And he said he felt fine at the end of it. The whole time, people were wailing. People were, people were crying. People were convicted over their sins. And then, as he was leaving that meeting, this guy just gets no meal breaks. As he's leaving that meeting, a messenger comes and grabs him and says, you have to go over to the field. You have to go over to the field. A group of people have gathered, and they're screaming out under conviction of sin. And so he went over there to an even larger crowd that was just in the middle of this freezing cold 5 a.m. Uh, a field, he gets up on, on a little wood, uh, a, a knoll, a little rock that he could find, and he starts preaching there, and of course, God pulls out the same kind of thing. Miraculous circumstances by God's sovereign spirit. Absolutely amazing. But there's another case of the exact same sort of thing happening, and this was in a town over called Arnoll. And there, some of the Presbyterian ministers had gotten wind that this guy was leading a revival and, and he was a little bit too Wesleyan in his sanctifi sanctification theology and that was far too much for the Scottish uh, Presbyterians and they called a stop to this whole thing. No amount of souls being saved is worth joining with a man that has slightly different sanctification theology to you, all right? Scottish Presbyterians. And so they said, this guy has to be done away with. They, they cry out against his sins and they spread these rumors. So he gets to this town of Arnold and there's 70 people there. 
all of them already churchgoers, not at all what he was hoping or expecting, but there were five ministers there. And when they get there, they go into the house of a different John Smith. And in the, uh, sorry, not John Smith's house, but John Smith's neighbor who was a farmer, uh, not a Christian himself, but they, he allowed them to stay, to go into his uh, large stone barn. And so they go in there, and uh, while they're in this, this large stone building, John Smith is asked to pray by Duncan Campbell. They're praying for much of the night. He says, John, may you come up and pray? John gets up, and as he prays, he prays for about half an hour, and then he pauses, and he looks up to God, And he says, God, you are a covenant-keeping God. In this town, your honor is at stake. Pour now, pour out your spirit on them that are thirsty, as you have promised. Lord God, I can't speak for these five other ministers. I can't speak for the other gentlemen and women that are gathered here tonight, but I can speak for myself. I believe I speak truly, Lord God. You know that I am thirsty. And in that moment... He fell into it. No, he didn't. Something else cooler happened. The entire stone barn that they were in shook. Duncan Campbell says in his book, he goes, you want to know what I mean by shook? I mean shook. I have no other word for it. I don't know how it didn't fall down. I don't know how granite didn't split, being as brittle as it is, but, but jugs of water were falling off of the walls and smashing on the ground. The entire building shook. And he, he, he refers to Acts chapter 4, verse 31. When the disciples had prayed in Jerusalem, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God boldly. One of the deacons turns to Duncan Campbell and says, an earth tremor, Duncan, as if he missed it. And Duncan says, yes, but I think something else. They didn't obsess over it. They didn't, didn't make a big deal out of it. They, they wrapped up, the, not, not sure of what, uh, what other dangers might come down onto their head. They wrapped up the meeting, 2 a.m. They walk out into the town, and what they see is an entire town of people, all turned against them by their pastors. You're not allowed to go uh, uh, be a part of this revival. They looked, and it was, as if, it was as if a galaxy was being swallowed into a black hole. When I read the descriptions, that's what it sounds like. In the, in the dark of night, 2 a.m., all of these lamps and lanterns for right, from right across this flat area are all centering in on the church's meeting house. People were walking, awoken by probably not the shaking of the house. That was uh, uh, not altogether loud. It would not have been heard over the wind of the, of the natural area. But they were walking, having been awoken by God's Spirit, and they all got to uh, the whole city was astir. And they were carrying chairs and stools, knocking on the church door. There was no one in it. They were knocking on the church door, crying out, is there room in the church for us? So Duncan went in. He preached the gospel. Many were convicted of sins. People uh, uh, didn't go home until later that day. The uh, work stopped in the entire uh, town and city the next day. And spontaneous prayer meetings started happening in homes and in work sheds and and, and in garages and on the sides of the road. He says the the, the street became the anxious bench, became the the, the, the altar where people would go and seek God. The minister of the parish said God seemed to be everywhere. They report later, a few years later, and say every single house in Arnold traces to those few weeks a conversion of somebody in their home. Every single house. 
And then in Barvis, back to the original, original area, one more miraculous uh, 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 meeting. After one of the Sunday services had finished, uh, the congregants sort of did a Hope Reform Baptist Church number and they all just stood outside talking about the Lord for far too long. And they sat there and they were talking and they were, they were, they were chatting about uh, the goodness of the Lord. And then one young man just took to the stage and he cried out and he prayed to God and then fell into a trance. And then everybody, still out in the, in the uh, uh, foyer sort of area and out on the steps of the church, they all ran back in and started. many people started crying out in conviction of sin and crying for mercy of Jesus Christ. And then the, the occasion says, until the early hours of the morning. But this is a morning service. They're finishing around maybe 10, 11 and then hang around, maybe, maybe they hung around till 12, and then they're there until the early hours of the next morning. This is, an, this is, this is nearly a 24-hour uh, move of God. There was people gathering everywhere. This is what Duncan says. In all parts of town, people were gathering, praying, and being convicted of sin. There was a moving scene, some weeping in sorrow, some in distress, others filled with the joy and love in their hearts, falling upon their knees, conscious only of the presence and power of God who had come in revival blessing. And during this all night, you know, all afternoon, all night, almost all morning meeting, there's two men who were in there in, who were pipers. Now, the way you can look at people and know that they're pipers is that they would be dressed in traditional Scottish piper regalia. That would be a sash, uh, crests and, and mottos across their chest. They would be in a kilt. They would have that massive hat on, their boots, even swords across their belt. This is the full piper regalia, maybe carrying their bagpipes. Maybe that was still in the van. But these two men came in uh, who, were, who were pipers because they had been heading over to the other part of town in, in, in Callaway in order to lead the young people in a dance on a Sabbath. These were sinners. These were men that were intent on breaking the Sabbath keeping of the Lord, who were intent on leading young people into sin. And they were there, and the pastor and brother saw them, the, the, the pastor of the town over, that they were going to lead their dance. That pastor was actually in Barvis helping out with this all-day prayer meeting because he heard about it and traveled over. And while he's there, he sees these pipers and he talks to them and he finds out where they were going and they were at the back of the church crying to God for mercy. And so he says to his wife, well, obviously there's a town, there's, there's a town hall filled with young people currently dancing and they have no music. Let's go. Let's go fill the void and tell them what has been happening here. And so him and his wife hop in the car. They drive over and they get to the, the, the place where all of the young people were dancing. And this is the parish minister. This is the guy that tries to evangelize them. This is the guy who's been telling them year in, year out, stop your Sabbath breaking, stop dancing, get holy, get saved. And he walks in and the room goes silent. Walks up and he takes the stage and he says, I know that you're currently out of a piper. I'll tell you that the two pipers destined for this party are calling out to God for mercy in the next town over of Barvis, and I'm here to tell you that the gates of mercy are swung open for you as well. And some of them were very uncomfortable with his being there, and he said, oh, this just wouldn't work today. But he said, will you sing a psalm with me? That's what he says to these young people that hate him 
and, and I, I guess they were all just born and bred on singing psalms because they all go, okay, as long as you lead it. So the, the, these young people all gather with him and they sing a psalm and he sings with them Psalm 139. From thy spirit, whither shall I go? Or from thy presence fly? Ascend I to heaven, lo, thou art there. There also, if I lie, in hell. And then he sung for them the song of Psalm 50 and the Psalter that, that, that calls God the, the flaming fire that burns. And then he went into a period of exhortation and the silence turned into the noise of crying and conviction of sin that filled the room and almost blasted the meeting house's roof off. The people were wailing and screaming with conviction of their sin. The effects of this sort of thing that happened over Barbas and Coleraway and, and uh, uh, other parts of Lewis and Harris, the effects were that, that pubs closed within a week. Pub, pubs that were filled to the brim with young and old men drinking their, their health and their money away closed down because they were all at the church. So, so we're in Brisbane, 2023, when, when every year or so another historical church is sold to become a pub. Well, back then, all of these bars were closing down and, and being reopened for meeting houses for prayer because God was sweeping through so powerfully. There was, in the later years, up to decades afterwards, as Duncan Campbell recounted and went back to the parishes, he could say that there was almost nothing of backsliding among the people. There was almost no pastors who said, well, I know we added 3,000 or 200 or 500 souls during that revival, but most of them fell away. Not even a large portion, not even a notable portion fell away. Most of the pastors said that there was no backsliding in their churches. And the amount of ministers, missionaries, and elders that came from those young people that were saved in the revival was beyond counting. Part of this points to the third marker of the uh, 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 revival. We've, done, we've spoken two of them. We're getting to closing now. The first was the deep awareness of God's presence. The second was God's miraculous uh, uh, creation of circumstances. The third was the deep conviction of sin. This was marked everywhere that it was occurring, was that they would be crying, bending over, falling on their knees, wailing, falling on their faces. Many of them were prostrate, just, just falling down as they come into the church doors because of the guilt of their sins on their hearts. You heard it in the man who was crying out, hell is too good for me. You hear it in the testimony of Mary Peckham, who was a very famous singer and dancer, a, a lewd young woman leading many into sin and herself very, very uh, 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 loose in morals, that kind of woman. And she came back to her hometown where her nominal Christian parents had been saved and she started going to the prayer meetings and she realized how guilty she was and she prayed to God. She wrote this down in her journal. I will leave the worldly ways of my life. I will go with your people to your worship on Sabbath, and every other prayer meeting, even if at the end of it you shall send me to hell, because that is what I deserve. And so she committed herself to just going to church, going to the prayer meetings, because God was worthy of it, whether or not he saved her, but God did end up saving her at a prayer meeting. Six months later, she was in this horrible conviction of sin, I'll just obey God and go to hell for six months before God saved her. That was one of the markers of this revival. And the fourth marker was the deep desire to bring other people with them to Jesus Christ. There was this young man, Donald, who was saved at one of the, in fact, he was saved during one of the revival nights, but on a different island where there was no revival happening. 
the, 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 the spirit broke out, there was all this conviction, and then, and then multiple people in a town on a different island got convicted of their sins and saved in the moment, and then gathered together, told their stories, then wrote to Duncan Campbell, and then he came over and visited them. So there wasn't even human uh, 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 agency in some of these conversions. But this young man, Donald, it was said that he... There was more people saved by his witness and prayers because he would go to all of these prayer meetings and whatnot. He would minister to people and walk around and pray with people and go to houses that people haven't rocked up from yet, knock on their doors, drag them out to the meeting. It says that more people were saved by his hand than all of the ministers of the towns put together. So it was with the young people. They were all being saved and they were bringing their friends out of fear of judgment of God. They were not afraid of the judgment of their peers. But this also sort of correlates to Duncan Campbell's own conversion himself, this theme of bringing other people with you to Jesus. Duncan Campbell was a young man who grew up, in, a young boy in Scotland. That's where he was born and raised. He didn't speak a lick of English until he was much, much older. He spoke Gaelic, and he entered the profession of piping. So he was a piper at a large party one day on a Sunday, no less, and he was uh, leading these people in a tune that reminded him of a psalm that they had sung at church many years before, and in his heart and in his mind, he was convicted of his sin, and he put down his pipes, uh, and he walked off stage, and the other piping band members were saying, Duncan, are you okay? We're, we're in the middle of a concert, and he said, I'm, I'm well in body, but not of soul, and, and he just started walking home, and as he's walking home, he passes his father's uh, father and mother's church, and he sees the light on, and so he, he goes up and he peers in through the keyhole, and he can see his father on his knees in a prayer meeting in the church. So he walks in, and he said it would have been a ridiculous sight, full Piper regalia, walking into a 10-person prayer meeting in the middle of the night, and he walks up and he sits down next to his father, and he says, Father, I'm convicted of sin, and his father turns to him and says, I know, son, I'm praying. And he listens in and his father prayed, just continues to plead the Lord that he would save his son. His father knew he would do that. And then he went home and he found his mother, who was unable to attend the prayer meeting because she had guests, cousins coming out of town. And so she was on the kitchen floor praying for her son as well. He walked in, he overheard her, he told her what had happened to him and said, I need to seek Jesus tonight. And she said, well, a cousin is sleeping in your bed upstairs, always the way it is, so you need to go out to the barn, go and seek Jesus in the barn. And so he went out to the barn, he got on his knees, he prayed, and God saved him. But he said that his whole life was a, Christian life was a losing battle with sin. He just lived in Romans 7, never got into Romans 8, he said. He was struggling with the lost battle against sin his whole life. And one day, he was uh, uh, in 1918, in the final British charge, against, uh, 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 cavalry charge uh, uh, in, in, I believe it was France. In 1918, he was, he was in the First World War. And he was representing his country and his commonwealth. And, and he was uh, uh, on, on the uh, uh, cavalry riding into what he said was, was German machine gun fire. He said, it's a fearful thing to know you're about to meet God at the face of a machine gun. 600 rounds per minute being fired at you. And he was knocked off of his horse because of a large bullet that struck him in his, in his midsection. And he fell down onto the ground, having just been mowed down with his brothers. He was laying in this piles of dead Scotsmen. And as he lay there bleeding, he was crying out to God, in his heart, he was crying out to God with not the conviction that he would go to hell, but the conviction that he would be bringing no one else with him to Jesus. And he thought of the, the hymn that he knew as a child that said, Must I empty-handed go 
must I meet my Savior so? Not one soul with which to greet him must I empty-handed go. And as he lay there bleeding, he heard the trumpet that he thought was taking him to heaven, but it was Canadians. They don't take people to heaven. The Canadian cavalry was coming up behind the Scottish cavalry, and, and as they rode through, they, they, they wiped out the rest of the Germans, but on the way through, this was the mercy. One of, the, one of the, 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 the Canadians' horses trampled on Duncan Campbell's back as he was face down in the mud, and he let out this horrible groan. He wore the scars of it the, his entire life, but he let out this groan as all the, the wind was pushed out of his lungs. Ugh! And then, because the Canadian heard that, Dead people don't usually make that noise. He thought he rode over a dead Scot. He was a living Scot. And so he came back after he killed the Germans and, and he knelt down and he found in, in the mess and the mud and the blood of the wolf of, of the battlefield, he found Duncan Campbell bleeding. He lifted him up. He put him on, on the back of his horse and Duncan felt as he was riding, he, he thought he would see the Lord any moment, praying just for the mercy to, bring one, to have a long enough life after this to bring one sinner with him to Jesus. As he got pulled off of the Canadian horse and put into the medical, medical uh, uh, bay, he, uh, uh, you know, they started packing his wounds and helping keep him and, 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 and rehydrating him, and he was keeping with it just enough to be able to sing softly in Gaelic, because he still didn't know English, singing in Gaelic one of the old hymns that he had learned as a child. And there were Canadian men in the medical bay just next to him who didn't understand Gaelic but knew the tune and started humming and singing to themselves that song and seven of them were struck down to their knees with conviction of sin and were saved. And they, they came into his little bay after the doctors were gone and said, brother, do you speak any English? We, we want to hear more about Jesus. God answered his prayer right then, and then he went on to use him as one of the leaders of a great revival that would sweep across the Isles of Lewis and Scotland. One of the big lessons to take out of the whole revival that, that we learn here is that God does revival. No human being does. There's nothing that churches can plan, do, uh, uh, put instrumentation together, no, no amount of agency, organization, advertising, gifts, or charisma. If God's not in it, there will be no revival. But if God is in it, then the lack of those things means absolutely nothing. He can do whatever he wants at any single moment. What is left to people to do then is pray. Just pray that God would do it and that he would overcome every obstacle. The Duncan Campbell says, one of the lessons from Arnold in Scotland that came out was that nothing lays out of the reach of prayer unless it lays out of the bounds of God's will. But as long as God wills it, prayer can see it happen. That is what I want us to think of and think, not, not just hear a, a great story of bygone eras, but rather think at any moment, at any time that God's people decide to be faithful enough with the privilege and tool of prayer that he's given to us, that we would call on him according to his covenant promises. God, you gave your son to the world. We are a people that abide in you in reliance and that preach your word by expounding your gospel, we therefore call on you to fulfill what you said in John 3, that if the Son is lifted up, then he will draw all men to himself, that you will build your church, and that the time of restoration would come upon us. Father God, pour out your water upon dry lands. You ask him, you ask the Lord, in our groups later, and as we go home, ask him to give supernatural awareness of his reality to our community. 
Ask him to arrange miraculous circumstances that we never could. Ask him to give, first to his church and then to the world, a deep, abiding sense of the guilt of sin, a trembling conviction of sin. And then ask him to give us an obsession, like Duncan Campbell, an obsession with bringing other people with us to Jesus. Pray and beg that you and those you know and this whole church, none of us would go to Jesus without a single other sinner's name in our hand. Let's pray. Father God, we are thirsty. We live in a generation and a land that is thirsty. But we are nowhere near as thirsty as we ought to be or as we, as we could be if we were if we were seeing with your eyes or if we were considering our generation and our neighbors with the eternal mindset that you consider them with. Father God, I pray that you would give us the, the burning heart of the Apostle Paul that genuinely weeps for sinners, that would rather be cut off forever to be able to see many others grafted into the kingdom. Father God, please don't give us, don't allow us to have affectation or, or, or shows and fakeness in piety but rather a genuine spirit given which can't be manufactured by any man, by any church, by any sermon, by any, by any atmosphere in a building. Please give us that thing that only the spirit can give, which is genuine hunger for Jesus Christ's glory through the salvation of souls. Father God, we, we pray that you would be gracious to us and forgiving towards us for being those who may have a tremendous grasp of the gospel, but grasping it so tightly we're not letting it go to others, for being so thankful that we know what the Bible says and not urgent to see your gospel spread among people. Father God, would you please bring many souls into our church, into our, into our houses, into our fellowship groups, into our workplaces that we can reach with your gospel. Please divinely ordain situations that sinners might be able to hear of you, pick up a tract out of the, the garden or be given it at the shops, whatever it may be, Lord God. Would you please ordain all kinds of situations that sinners would receive your gospel. Come here or go to any Bible teaching church and be nourished and cherished with the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. Please make us hungry. Please convict us of our own sin. Please make us those people with pure hearts and clean hands so that you can trust us with awakening. You can trust us with revival and you can trust us with an outpouring of your Holy Spirit. Father God, please do this in our day as you've done in many other days and promise to do for all who rest and trust in you. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.